and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the deep values, the driving principles of those who shape our common life. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or platform, some kind of influence over the rest of us. And I try and get a sense of what is sacred to them in my language, by which I mean the deep values that they are trying, but of course, sometimes failing to live by, and their kind of vision for the work that they're doing. I speak to people from lots and lots of different perspectives, political, ideological, religious, people from a wide range of different professions. The point is to listen deeply, not argue with anyone, but really just seek to understand what might be driving them. And I hope that in so doing, to grow in empathy and curiosity about people different from myself and who I might disagree with. It seems in our divided and polarized times, something worth doing. In this episode, you'll hear me speak to James Marriott. James is a columnist on the Times newspaper. He works across culture, ideas and society and also uh, is a book reviewer. We spoke about his sacred value of literature. Uh, We spoke about what it is that uh, kind of a book critic or critics in general are trying to do. And we spoke about how he thinks his father's nihilism that he was raised in, how that shaped him. There's some reflections from me at the end, and I really hope you enjoy listening. James, we're going to jump in the deep end, having had a bit of time to think about it to reflect on your what is sacred to you, the kind of driving values in your life. What bubbled up? Yeah, it was really interesting being made to think about that. And it made me, reflecting on my childhood, understand that I'd been basically raised as a nihilist, I think. I was recalling the conversations I had with my dad, often in the car on the way to school, and the sorts of things that he told me. He was, and he is, very philosophically inclined. And I recall him Every morning in the car on the way to school, we'd have some conversation which might encompass the non-existence of free will. I remember him saying, I remember him telling me about Laplace's demon, the idea that if you could predict the location and the forces acting on every atom in the universe, then you could predict them in the next moment, in the next moment, in the next moment, which proved that free will didn't exist. He was very keen on evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology and the idea that we're just the products of our selfish genes working them out through our lives, uh, very keen on atheism. So yeah, I was raised, I understood to be a nihilist, which I hadn't really thought about before, but reflection on every single thing I've been told in my childhood about the universe and about philosophy, it all tended towards the idea that we're all just bunches of atoms driven by evolutionary forces, with one exception, which was literature. And the other sort of slightly odd and I think probably quite anachronistic thing about my childhood and the way I was raised was the essentially sacred uh, attitude to literature that I had growing up. So yeah, stuff I hadn't thought about. We used to celebrate Shakespeare's birthday every year. My dad would bake a cake. Wow. And we would, yeah, I, I don't think we actually sort of sat around reciting speeches to celebrate, but it was a very, it was a very big deal. Um, I was always told that poetry and literature were by far the most important things in life. I remember my dad saying, uh, literature tells us what it is or might be to be human, which was an idea that I never seriously thought to question and probably haven't really ever not believed in since then. And yeah, I suppose I sort of grew up waiting to get into the wide world when everybody else, I discover all the other people who agreed that uh, literature was the central pillar of life and explained everything. Uh, That hasn't quite happened yet. I think I'm still waiting to discover (laughs) the social sphere in which that's a consensus. But yeah, I think a strange mixture of nihilism and uh, worship of Shakespeare was the atmosphere in which I was raised. I'm fascinated. It (laughs) is an unusual parenting philosophy. I feel like mm, for those people... for whom that's where they land, philosophy, on the big question about what life means, most of them would have some hesitation in framing it quite so boldly with their children. How do you think that formed you? I think, well, it's interesting because 
When you start writing opinion columns every week, you begin to unconsciously reveal little parts of yourself to yourself and you notice that certain themes recur. I think, I hope it's made me skeptical in a lot of ways and suspicious of things that sound too good to be true and suspicions of illusions. I think it's made me, for better and for worse, probably quite unideological, uh, suspicious of political enthusiasms and political affiliations. There's always this little thrum, I think, in the back of my head of having been told that it's all meaningless. And that's certainly a part of my character that I, you know, I regret. I think, you know, I was never a youthful communist. I never got excited about going in a protest or some, you know, exciting world-changing project. And I think that's because I had this little kind of voice implanted very early into the back of my head saying, oh, you know, we're all atoms. Uh, free will doesn't exist. Um, and that has perhaps made me a little too, I don't know, I sometimes worry that maybe that's maybe at times a little too skeptical and a little too cynical. Mm. So I don't know if you noticed, but I asked you what was sacred to you and you answered the second question I usually ask, which is what were the big ideas in your childhood? Do you have a sense of something that is sacred to you or do you think that your mind is getting away from that concept as something that you don't feel drawn to? No, I think certainly literature is the thing that's sacred to me. And I guess I answered that question that way to kind of try to explain how much it stands out. Everything I was ever raised to believe was, you know, meaningless apart from literature, which is the one thing that we, you know, I was really brought up to worship and still probably do worship in a slightly, I sometimes think, anachronistic, old-fashioned kind of way. That really helps. Thank you for helping me understand that. Um, Did you have another parent who was around? Did they share those kind of nihilistic approaches to life, if so? No, my, my my mum is much less, well, much less philosophically nihilistic. She's certainly a pessimist in the way that I think I am, but probably less extravagantly philosophical in her pessimism and more just kind of suspecting in an every in an everyday kind of way that things are about to go wrong. Uh, but yes, no, it wasn't. There were no great optimists in my family. I'm not sure there ever have been. I can't think of any relative who, uh, yeah, doesn't live in a sort of atmosphere of oh god, everything's getting worse. I think it's probably to do with a lot of my family's from Yorkshire. There's probably a lot of door Yorkshiremen in my family. <laughs> And you, um, you grew up in Newcastle, these Yorkshire influences. Could you just paint a word picture of you as maybe a young person and a teenager? What was the world like that you were operating in? Yeah, again, probably quite an anachronistic one. Um, yeah, it's a slightly strange upbringing. Well, not, not, not entirely strange, but for example, it was quite a long time before we got a TV. I never really had a phone. I didn't get a laptop or a computer till quite late. So I was really living in a world surrounded by books, basically, in a way that perhaps I think is probably becoming increasingly unusual in that that was just my main, the main thing I did with my time was read. And it didn't occur, it didn't seem odd to me that that was how I'd spend my time. Everybody else seemed odd to me. And I thought, you know, mm. haven't they understood that this is the priority that we should all be, you know, reading Thomas Hardy and Dickens and stuff. I... Yeah, I was very idealistic about literature. And that was probably also slightly a kind of conscious decision. I'd inherited this idea that, you know, this was the thing that I just had to devote my time to. Mm. Um, yeah, what else What else to say? I mean, that's the main thing that stands out. I was pretty unhappy as a child. My parents divorced. I had a real sense, I think, of just waiting to get out of Newcastle, waiting to get out of that slightly often very unhappy family situation. And I was really fixated on getting down south, especially obsessed with going to Oxford. This stuff loomed really large in my mind. And I think in a strange way, and actually other of my friends who also, you know, grew up in provincial towns had those adolescences where they slightly felt like their lives were waiting to begin a bit, said the same thing. You know, they kind of felt like, their adult personality was a project which was being postponed until they ended up in a more congenial place. And I think I did feel like that a lot. I was quite shy. I was quite unhappy. And I'd really sort of fixated on the idea that I was going to go to university 
embarrassingly, I really had decided I was going to go to Oxford. And that then, you know, I would sort of begin the project of myself. But I think I really viewed myself as uh, larval, is that the word? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, not that I ever thought I was going to become a butterfly, but I was in my sort of chrysalis phase, I think. And it's only in hindsight I realized how incredibly dangerous, you know, that approach is that you've basically decided to postpone your personality until you know, a future event, which you imagine will be marvellous. And then that's going to solve all the problems of your life. Uh, but fortunately, I did have a good time at university. So I wasn't, you know, crushingly disappointed and realised that my postponement of my personality uh, had turned, you know, turned out to be an appalling idea and I should have I should have got started earlier. I think it's probably not an uncommon feeling a lot of people have in adolescence. I think it was especially pronounced for me. I really kind of viewed myself as, you know, a kind of work in progress. Mm, yeah, no, it's very familiar. I think those of us who lean bookish and nerdy can feel quite unseen until all of the bookish nerds gather in one place and <laughs> throw our arms around each other. Um, I wanted to ask, what was the first book, the, the first novel that you remember reading that I want to frame as felt like it really um, connected with your values, but I guess that felt somehow true about the world in a way that you'd not yet understood? That's a really interesting question. My great teenage passion was for Iris Murdoch, the <sighs> philosopher novelist, you know, who wrote between the 1950s and 1990s, I think early 1990s, she stopped writing. And I have slightly reneged on my Iris Murdoch enthusiasm because I now feel I like those books for slightly the wrong reasons. So Iris Murdoch novels are full of... Uh, there's a Martin Amis, there's a famous Martin Amis review where he says that every, everybody in Iris Murdoch novels is called Julian or Hillary or Hillary and Julian. And they all have these sort of implausible sounding jobs teaching philosophy or working in the civil service and spending their weekends reading reading Plato. And this was my... I was really convinced this was how my adult life was going to be. And I was really kind of thought, I'm going to move down south going to read Plato at the weekends and my entire life will be uh, navigating uh, complex but enjoyable emotional entanglements and debating everything with reference to Plato. And I think this was, uh, this all seemed incredibly true and incredibly important at the time. In hindsight, I think I was motivated uh, more by pretension than uh, genuine intellectual enthusiasm. Um, I think also, I mean, my first my first sort of literary passion is for poetry, not for not for novels. And I think the first, I mean, kind of weirdly, I think the book that made the biggest impression on me was I remember finding a copy of the weirdly the collected poems of Alexander Pope that was being chucked out of my school library, which was being turned to a learning resource center, and picking that up and reading poems like the Rape of the Lock and the Dunciad. And I'm not sure if those, partic- those poems particularly, you know, spoke to me or told me something that I thought was true about the world. But I suddenly had this sense that literature was this thing that I could just go out and find. And anyone can, there's a great thing about literature as an art form. There's no real bar to entry. Anybody can pick up this kind of dusty old book in a library and access a world that I guess struck me as really important, really old, uh, much more profound than, you know, anything that I'd sort of experienced in my day-to-day life, which in hindsight struck me as perhaps slightly odd things to have projected onto the poetry of Alexander Pope, who obviously was a great cynic. But that was the really formative book for me, I think. You know, I, I loved Iris Murdoch, but I, it was never, it, I was probably all, always slightly aware that those were entertainments and it was, you know, poetry that was the thing that seemed really important to me. Iris Murdoch is, I don't think there's such a thing as an opposite of a nihilist, but she has a very strong, I think, vision of meaningfulness and an orientation to the good. Exactly. And that's why it strikes me, I was thinking about this beforehand, that's why it strikes me as so odd that she is the person I should have discovered and fixated on. And that, again, I mean... I think it's probably not uncommon for one's adolescent enthusiasms to be slightly shallow. Mine, mine certainly were. I wasn't particularly thinking about those uh, contradictions. I probably only had the vaguest sense of the way that her philosophical Platonism informed, informed the novels. Obviously, I've never really believed in the kind of abstract existence of 
a free-floating good, which she's so keen on. I just really was experiencing them probably in quite a shallow way, enjoying, you know, stories of very cultured people uh, having exciting lives, which was the kind of existence I aspired to. Yeah, and that's the joy of her. I think they work on all those levels. Um, you went from university, a brief foray into antiquarian books. What? Tell me about how that chapter started. Yeah, well, I, I've been slightly scathing about my time in antiquarian books and now always slightly worried that I've pissed off my former colleagues by being rude about their trade. Yeah, I was sort of had no, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do after university and a university tutor obviously spotted that I was sort of a bookish, unworldly, slightly old-fashioned person who put me in touch with a bookshop called Bernard Quaritch Limited, where I worked for three years cataloging books and manuscripts, mainly from the 17th and 18th centuries, I think. It was, in hindsight, I can see it's a wonderful job. I remember someone coming into the bookshop which very, very rarely ever had visitors. It was by appointment only. And looking into the <laughs> office where I worked, where I was kind of hunched over this huge pile of dusty 18th century novels and saying, oh my God, that looks like the perfect life. Which struck me as deeply ironic because at the time, it was absolutely not my perfect life. You know, I'd discovered, I think I'd begun to think that I wanted to be a journalist. And I really kind of felt like this was not, you know, taking me forward in any kind of way that I wanted to be going forward. Um... But I am able to understand in hindsight that that is, as first jobs go, you know, that is really not a bad first job. And I, yeah, I've, I've gotten lots of trouble, I think, on Twitter once for sort of writing some piece saying how unfulfilled I found it. And actually everyone was saying, you know, plenty of people do worse things out of university than go and sit in a dusty corner of a bookshop cataloging uh, 18th century novels. Yes, they do. But I think it's legitimate to express our own experience of our own lives. <laughs> um, that doesn't... Uh, yes, we will leave aside the vagaries of social media. It. So the image that came to my mind as you were speaking was of a kind of monastic scriptorum. I went to a monastery on Patmos recently and then the monks have a library that normal people are not allowed in and I sort of stood longingly outside. As you moved into this role as... You've made the distinction previously between book reviewer and book critic, and I'd like to hear more about that, but certainly kind of writing about books for other people. I'd love to hear your kind of sense of what it is you're doing. What is that role for and how do you conceive of it? God, that's an interesting point. I wonder how much I've ever really thought about it. I think you probably have to be relatively humble as a book reviewer, you know, somebody writing quite short reviews for a newspaper, not long critical essays in the LRB that your fundamental job is to tell people whether or not a book is good and then they will decide whether or not to buy it. And it's a kind of, do they call it service journalism where you're saying this is worth buying, this is not worth buying. You know, it's not a million miles uh, removed from, you know, someone reviewing toothbrushes. The witch magazine for books. That kind of thing. So I think you have to remember that's your fundamental job. I guess... What's, what's my other role? Hopefully making people excited about books, bringing things that are good to their attention, explaining why certain people are worth reading and why other people aren't. Yeah, and, yeah, just hopefully kind of communicating a bit of excitement about, uh, about books and the people who write them. Yes, I mean, there's one way of developing, sorry, this is just how my mind works, the kind of monastic scriptorial. Basically, you're the first person I think I've ever spoken to over nearly six years whose sacred value is so strongly linked to what they've ended up doing for a job. And so it is it is fascinating to me what role it is, It whether it is in some ways almost a sort of priestly role if you're thinking of literature as sacred, a kind of offering or a teaching or connecting people with this gift that you want um, to bring to the world. When you read perhaps a piece of criticism or a review that you think, gosh, that was amazing. What is it that it's doing? Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, it, it really, it really depends. You know, some criticism is very moving. Some is just brilliantly clever. I really like ideas. Um, but yeah, I guess that kind of, and maybe if I'm unwilling to be pretentious, I suppose, you know, 
if literature is a, you know, what's a pretentious metaphor? If literature is a temple, book reviewers are the people, you know, down by the door, you know, kind of doing a vague, you can, you know, sort of with the bounces of literature saying who can come in and who can come and who can't come in. Or, you know, we at least aspire to be the bounces of literature and plenty of people get in without book reviewers telling them they don't really belong there and will (laughs) not let in plenty of people who really should be inside. I want to quote you something that it might be too highbrow for you. I don't know if you've come across it. It's, I think, one of the kind of great pieces of art about creativity and cultural gatekeeping and who gets to offer their gifts to the world. And it's called Ratatouille. And in it, there is a critic called Anton Ego. Have you seen the film? I haven't. It is genuinely, I'm joking, but I think Pixar's animations are... uh, absolutely packed with profound ideas dressed up as kids films but there is a restaurant reviewer who is very snobby about who can cook and who can't and at the end he has this kind of mea culpa monologue about the role of the critic and he starts with the kind of uh, something along the lines of that famous quote that Brene Brown is always talking about, you know, it's not the critic that counts, it's the man in the arena, it's the person who is making things and starts there. And then he says, I think what a critic at their best can do is make room for the new, to find and champion the new and kind of take the public by the hand and say, I know this is scary. You know, I know this is not what you're used to, but I promise you, if you give it some time and attention, you will see its value. Do you ever feel like, that kind of almost treasure hunting um, instinct in yourself. Yeah, I think so. I think it's something that comes naturally to me, which is why it's not probably a surprise if I ended up being a book reviewer. I've always, you know, got excited about new books, wanted to go and tell people about them. I guess maybe I am slightly wary of, I think there's a view of, you know, some novelists and some actors and stuff and filmmakers view critics as basically parasites who can't do what they can do and are therefore resentfully standing outside the industry trying to tell people how to do it when they wouldn't when they could never do it sell when they could never do it them, them, themselves i guess if i'm skeptical about my own you know book reviewing i think criticism is an art in its own right there's a really good i mean it's a very martin amos thing where he ranks all the different types of writing in term, in terms of difficulty and i think he goes bottom film scripts then writing plays then writing novels then writing literary criticism, and then the highest one is poetry. And I think actually there is a point to be made that literary criticism at its best is requires extraordinary feats of intelligence and accomplishment on the, on the part of the person doing it. You know, you have to be aesthetically sensitive. You have to be a good reader. You have to be able to write superbly yourself. You have to be open to ideas. You have to have a historical knowledge. I think people who write the very highest form of literary criticism are writing some of the highest forms of literature because it draws, it demands so much of the critic. And I do think it's true that sometimes critics are working harder than novelists, but I wouldn't put myself into the ranks of one of those critics, I don't think. My role is more like your guy in Ratatouille. Do you ever feel the weight of responsibility if you know that you're holding the fate of a book that's been sweated and cried and wrestled with for years in your hands. Yeah. Do you try not to imagine the writer who's going to read the review? Yeah, well, it dawns on you more the longer you do it. I mean, when I started, I think all people who start out book book reviewing are kind of going thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, trash this and I'm going to say the truth and um, be rude about all these, you know, established literary icons. And that's going to be so cool. And no one's ever done that before which is probably a slightly kind of childish way to think. But I think also it is born of a feeling that nobody could really possibly care what you think. You know, I started writing book reviews when I was, what, 23, 24? And I remember thinking, it never really occurred to me that anybody could care what I thought particularly or take my opinion that seriously. And I remember once giving a very good review to a particular novel, which I won't name, and then waking up the next morning and receiving a message from the guy who'd wrote it saying, oh my God, this is the happiest day of my life. It's 11 in the morning. I'm drunk. I just read your review of my novel. I'm never going to be happier. This is incredible. And I was sort of thinking, oh God, you know, don't take me that seriously. I'm just, you know, some 24-year-old guy living in a living in a room in, you know, a shared flat in London. And that was a very salutary lesson because that made me think, 
actually people do do take book reviews seriously. As soon as it appears in, you know, the Times or the Literary Review or something, people probably take it even more seriously. And I think that was a point at which I, you know, grew up somewhat as a writer and started being a bit more, uh, you know, responsible. Do you have a kind of, and I think lots of us have these, but only at sort of a very semi-conscious form. Do you have a kind of rubric or a, a set of principles that you're running through when you're trying to write kind of conscience wrestles that you go through? What's your kind of, I guess, what are the ethical crunch points that come up for you as you're trying to do that part of your job? I think I've always told the truth about books or I told what I felt to be the truth. I think it's useful to try not to develop too many principles. I think it's quite hard on authors <laughs> to... Well, I mean, I guess I mean that it's quite hard on authors to start judging them against your internally developed values and ideas of how a book should be. And it's probably better to attempt to take each book in its own terms and say whether it's successful according to what it seems to be trying to do. Because, you know, I think the critic James Wood, sometimes people say of him that he's basically judging every book against, you know, the perfect, you know, his image of what that book could be were it perfect. And I think that can be a little cruel sometimes. Um, yeah, I try always uh, to tell the truth. I try not to be too cruel nowadays unless it's somebody who is established you enough. You think deserves a kick I think they can take it. Although, you know, if I ever write a book, I'm sure my views on that will change. Yeah, I think you just try to, I just try to not go with too many preconceptions. Although there are things I can always tell will irritate me if I think people are being pretentious or fake or saying stuff because it sounds impressive, not because it's true. Those are the things that will get my hackles up. Mm. um, One of the things I really value about good criticism and good columns, actually, which we'll come on to in a second, the kind of role they play in our public conversations, is the way they can help I think what both people are are doing is listening very hard to the public conversation and therefore able to spot kind of trends and themes in a way that a lot of people don't have time for. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about uh, the kind of millennial intellectuals, I guess the kind of the popular literary writers of the moment and what you think they're telling us about that, the world of ideas in which they and we are all swimming. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, this is on this front, I'm probably increasingly out of touch because that phrase, millennial intellectuals, was I think one that I used a few years ago to describe writers like, I think, who should I put in there? Gia Tolentino, Sally Rooney, Megan Nolan, I think was in there. And I really felt like I came of age at a kind of, I was lucky to come of age at a time when there were a lot of, there's a real generation of writers, those people I mentioned, probably all writing in a relatively similar way. I think there was a new outbreak of sincerity a few years ago. You know, Sally Rooney's novel, uh, novels, Normal People, Normal People especially, was really, un- and actually the most recent one, um, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Those are both books that are really unafraid of being sincere in a way that I think a lot of the literature that was written in the early 2000s was, you know, very ironic and posturing, people like Brett Easton Ellis would be the exact... Very distanced. Yes, exactly. And I think that was what the generation of people who are writing when I first sort of began to write myself in my early 20s were reacting against. That's something I found immensely sympathetic. I think it's probably a product of a world that seems more genuinely dangerous and endangered than uh, the writing of the early 2000s. You know, people in my generation... You know, coming of age at a time when it seems like, you know, the climate is doomed, democracy is fragile, a lot of things are going wrong. And, you know, that's kind of bored, sneering irony suddenly doesn't seem like enough. And there's real stakes in the world suddenly and really stuff that's really worth caring about. And that was really exciting. I, I wonder if that mood is as prevalent now as it was even five years ago. I was talking to a younger colleague who was saying that he thought that his generation, um, Gen Z, I guess, were a bit more cynical, a bit more disillusioned. I think he made the point that my generation, you know, now in their third, well, I'm 30, but, you know, some of them now but even older, you know, entering their 40s, we kind of had illusions to lose. And 
you know, we'd kind of grown up with an idea that we might, we'd still believed we might be richer than our parents. And, you know, the fact that the environment was really doomed was kind of news to us. Where And, you know, we still thought we might own a house and all this kind of things. And we were sort of have this sort of wounded idealism uh, that expressed itself in this, that kind of characteristic sadness and sincerity of Sally Rooney's novels. I think he thought that his generation never had illusions in the first place. And they were sort of much, cynic, much more cynical, much more satirical, much meaner. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if, if there's already another change going on since the kind of, you know, the theme that I identified in those writers that you mentioned. Yeah, that's interesting and troubling. Um, given that I, well, just because of the state of the world, but also because of the state of what literature can do to, it at its best, obviously it's never telling us what to think, but the kind of ambient world of meaning in which it's bringing does just create our kind of set of expectations and moral universe. I wanted to ask, and again, this is just, I'm also kind of geriatric millennial and very much shaped and formed by those kind of novels. But what I, what I see, and I have seen a little bit, I think in you, in some of your columns is this um, wistfulness that I agree that the, Sally Rooney's early novels, some of those earlier novels, Gia Tolentino, there is this kind of like comfort with speaking about trauma. You know, sadness and anxiety, kind of the dominant theme of mental health, the kind of sad girl literature, which I definitely reached saturation point with a little while ago. But, you know, the kind of bleeding darkness, particularly in female protagonists, but that which a lot of it did have a kind of nihilism to it, I think, in in the sort of um, meaningless philosophical world. But the, Sally Rooney's recent novel, Patricia Lockwood's uh, recent novel, I think particularly, I and maybe it's just we're aging, <laughs> uh, but you wrote a column not that long ago about when the kind of long withdrawing roar of Christendom disappears, when you're left with whatever it is that we have, don't we need meaning somewhere? And 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 a wistfulness for structures of meaning and belonging, stories in which we can ground ourselves, kind of morally formative communities. I'm kind of sensing something on the change. Your Gen Z comment made me I'm completely wrong, <laughs> but I wondered if you see any of that coming through in, in the fiction and the poetry and the culture that's being produced now. It's a really interesting question. I think, I guess, you know, society, you know, since probably the 90s has been much more secular and I, my, my my personal theory is that that secularism and that absence of faith is more comfortable is more comfortable in a society in which everything appears to be getting better. So if everyone's getting richer all the time, if you feel like the future is going to be better, I think these are quite it's quite easy not to have anything to believe in them because you don't really need it. I, I think mm. it's in that column that actually the idea that your kids will be richer than you is quite a profoundly existentially comforting thought. Mm. The idea that things really are going to get better. The philosopher John Gray always spoke about the idea that there was a kind of liberal faith in progress, that the idea that things mm. were going to get better was itself its own kind of religion. And I think that is being rapidly proved to be true. I think that was the sustaining myth of the 2000s. You know, we thought we could do without God. We thought we could do without religion. And we were really comforted by this idea that everything was going to get richer. Science was going to get better. Technology was going to get better. And we were on this sort of historical upward trajectory. Barack Obama, the rug that he had in the Oval Office, had this had the phrase, "The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice." Woven into it, and I think that was a really profoundly comforting subconscious thought for a lot mm. of people. The fact that the world now seems to be much more chaotic than we imagined has disrupted that belief in progress, and I think has left people scrabbling around for something new to believe in. And it is much harder to not have things to believe in, in a world that now seems genuinely chaotic. And I do think there will be new ersatz forms of belief or systems of meaning or faith springing up. And I think we're already seeing it. I think things like astrology, (laughs) however ironic it often is, the desire 
to believe that the future is predictable and that human beings have some cosmic relevance, I think is obviously a symptom of that search for meaning. Jordan Peterson, you know, I guess often someone appearing on the other side of the political spectrum, often for men, this whole system that he sets out where, um, you know, you can think of your life in mythological terms, you can think of yourself as the hero going through your life, slaying the dragon of chaos. This feeds the same desire for us to believe in our lives as, you know, meaningful, heroic, cosmically relevant events. And I imagine we'll see more stuff like that. I think, you know, the argument that politics has taken the role of religion is is true. I think a lot of the vociferous and strongly held political beliefs that we see at the moment are people are interested in them in, you know, as sources of meaning and identity in the one in the way they would once have gone to religion for those um for those things. And yeah, I suspect the next few years and decades will be very interesting because I think we'll probably see more stuff like that. I don't know whether the whether we'll see new religions or anything remotely that formal, but I think there will be more strange new beliefs. Mm. Given that literature plays a kind of role of something close to sacred in your life, do you think it is able to provide us with some of that existential studying? Like, can literature be a source of wisdom or is that asking too much of it? Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is for me. I mean, if I'm ever depressed or anxious, uh, which is not infrequently, the most reliable thing I can do to make myself feel better is to take my selected poems of W.H. Auden, open it at random and start reading. And I can't quite say what is so comforting about it, partly because it's probably an ancient enthusiasm, you know, one of the oldest enthusiasms of my life. You know, I was reading poetry since childhood. I think also the re- the really consoling thought is, oh my God, this is absolutely brilliant. And how reassuring that another human being was capable of something so wonderful. And that is only a happy thought and only an extraordinary thought. And I think that, yeah, that is the principal consolation. I mean, there's the consolation of all art. And for me, I guess, you know, li- literature is the art I love most. And that's what I get out of it. But I'm always amazed at how reliably that works to make me feel better. I just need to, you know, grab Auden from the shelves. I um, I wonder if that's why poetry sits at the top of your list and Martin Amos's list, because... And it's why I often feel cheered by this recent revival of interest in poetry, which is mainly driven by Instagram, and I'm not sure it's showing up in actual sales of poetry books, but first 1939 or whatever it is, which is very, very much speaks to that like generational thing of bleakness and terror and what is the world and what is my role in the world and how do I steady myself as the forces of darkness come to wash over me? And he says, you know, the whatever it is, the points of light, let, let me show an affirming flame. And there is something so... There is something so liturgical about poetry, about its unabashed. It's just not embarrassed to go, okay, what what does life mean? (laughs) What does it mean to be a good person? What is it about that form that you think makes us able to get to depth in a way that we, I think, have a lot of resistance to elsewhere? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I suppose probably it's just... A lot of it will just be read from cultural expectation. We accept that Mm. poems automatically start talking to us about profound things with... We don't roll our eyes in a poem in a way that we might in a novel. Yeah, with little preamble. I mean, some people do roll their eyes at poetry, and there are many poems at which I roll my eyes. But I think we're primed (laughs) to accept, you know, profound thoughts in that format. I think poetry, there's something kind of so inevitable about it. You know, language is so fundamental to uh, human beings. Poetry at its best, is the highest form of language. It's, you know, it just will, I think it will always exist. I can imagine that it virtually almost always has existed. You know, there's nothing, I think it just arises very naturally. You know, other art forms like opera can seem so sort of strange and why on earth does this exist? But I think it seems totally obvious that we should express ourselves like that. I mean, there are all these kind of, you know, I think didn't Seamus Heaney have these theories about the kind of, 
primitive impulse to poetry and, you know, about does iambic pentameter echo the rhythms of the human blood and all, all this sort of strange stuff. But I think partly, genuinely, it is a very deep human impulse and partly we've just been culturally and socially primed to expect poems to talk to us about profound things. Yeah, they're, al- they're allowed. I've been um, rewatching Fleischman is in Trouble, having read it a few years ago. Have you watched the adaptation? I've not watched it. I read the book though. Yeah, I imagine it's quite faithful from my memory. But the 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 end, which is this really kind of Gen X existential angst about what what is the meaning of a good life and how do we can cope with constrained choices and uh, what is it to grow up and fear our own mortality and die and suffer and just this like what does it all mean is done absolutely brilliantly. I have never seen it done better on television and yet still I was like oh this is quite on the nose isn't it like because because the frame of of a television series is that that should all be implied yes. rather than spoken exactly and I think also there is an intimacy to poetry you know in a poem we automatically accept that the poet is talking to us through this, through the poem, a TV series of lots of different people all interpreting somebody else's words. There's a really, um, there's a really good moment in Alan Bennett's play, The History Boys, where the history teacher, Hector, is talking about a, I think it's a Hardy poem to one of his students and describes the experience of reading a poem as uh, someone reaching out a hand and taking yours, which... I think describes, it's a kind of human consolation. You sort of feel that you're in direct contact with somebody who's had the feelings that you are having before and that's really consoling. Philip Larkin Mm. said that all he thought a poem could do was preserve a feeling. And I think the best poems are incredibly effective devices for preserving particular human emotions and Mm. putting us very, or making us feel very profoundly that we're in touch with particular people in the past. And I think there's a kind of intimacy to poetry as well that other art forms find more difficult to attain. You know, TV because it's filled with actors and people interpreting the words. Novels are filled with characters, but there's something always very direct about about poems. I think that must be part of it too. I'm really interested in divides and tribes and the sort of exhaustion of living in a world where we are very quick to sort people into um, groups that are not like us. Am I being idealistic to think that literature and poetry is part of the medicine for that? I never know if it's just a ridiculously naive thing. Yeah, I mean, I would love to, I would love to share that, that point of view. I suspect literature and poetry are now art forms that are too marginal to the culture to have any significant political impact, although I don't think that was always true although I think it probably once was politically relevant. I think another argument is that societies which are much more literate than perhaps ours is, societies in which reading books is much more widespread, in which reading long texts is much more widespread, develop a familiarity with complicated ideas and complicated arguments that is very good for democracy, very good for mutual understanding, very good for a very good medicine, as you say, against tribalism. Because in a society as ours is, where we experience other points of view, mainly in the form of 140 character tweets or TikToks, it's very hard to get inside somebody else's mind. But in a society in which you're experiencing other points, you know, primarily experiencing other points of view or other people in the forms of complex novels or even complex, you know, essays and columns in newspapers, there's a kind of slightly slower pace to it. It's less confrontational your political thoughts always require more consideration. And I think there's certainly an argument that we've never really had a democracy in a society that hasn't been deeply literate. You know, democracy coincides with the advent of mass literacy. We are now entering an age in which literature and texts are much less important. And I guess there's an interesting question mark and a slightly frightening question mark over whether a society that is less literate and less based on long, complex texts can, you know, still maintain a democracy and still maintain the ability of people of different political persuasions to speak to each other. Yeah. Does that make sense? 
It made a lot of sense, and it's a very interesting thought about how much our kind of social imaginarium of our common life and the common good relied on us to an extent reading from the same pool of texts, right? We would never all be reading the same things, but that there was enough overlap. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it's partly a point about the complexity of texts, which you engage in habitually. You know, in a literate culture, you're always presented with a relatively complex version of your opponent's arguments. You're not on Twitter or TikTok. And yeah, you're Mm. right. I mean, culture is also simply much more fragmented. And it's not only that we're we're not encountering complex versions of other political arguments, but we may just not be encountering them at all, or we may be deliberately fed the most stupid, infuriating um, versions of them. I think there was a good, there's a good fact I read somewhere. I think it was in Ian Leslie's book, Conflicted, where he says the idea that we live in um, bubbles on social media isn't, isn't quite true. He said, actually, probably most people are more exposed to other points of view on social media than they were if you just got the Times, the Telegraph, or the Guardian every day and only read one newspaper. But he was saying the problem is that, that we tend to invite, and we tend to encounter the stupidest and most evil possible form of our political opponents' arguments. So you know there'll be a thing on Twitter where you know someone will say something really stupid on either side of the political spectrum. Everybody who disagrees that will start mocking it, and that one stupid or evil idea is put in front of everybody who disagrees with it, which confirms their view that their opponents are evil morons. Because yeah. you know we're just finding the most egregious examples of what our enemies think and concentrating on those. I wanted to ask about columns because everything you said so far speaks to someone who is comfortable with complexity and doubt and emotion and uh, confession. I basically stopped reading columns. I read your columns, not religiously, but that would be weird. But when I see you've written something, I usually think, okay, I'll go see what James said about that. And a few other people, but mainly I have completely lost faith in the form because, and I don't know how much there's a sort of synchronistic relationship with social media, and maybe it was always like this, and I was just in a period of my life where I wanted ideological clarity and an argument that started and ended and made someone or something the bad guy. Um, What are you trying to do when you write a column, and how have you managed to mainly stay away from that? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I remember somebody saying to me that once upon a time, what every journalist wanted to be was a features writer. They wanted to go and write, you know, 3,000 words about something quirky or something interesting or, you know, this this was the famous journalism was people writing features about, you know, following, you know, George Bush on the campaign trail and writing 7,000 words about it. And the theory was that Twitter made everybody want to be a columnist. Twitter, you know, was full of opinions and everybody wanted their opinion to be plucked out and recognized by an institution like a newspaper as Mm. the important opinion that everybody should listen to. And I guess I was drawn to column writing for that reason. For me, it was clearly the most prestigious thing. Whereas some of this, I was told that, you know, 20 years ago, columns were viewed as slightly fusty and irrelevant. I guess you're right that columns can only be so complex and you know, every opinion I've written, I will always be dissatisfied with my ability to, you know, make it as nuanced as it should be. I think, I guess this is maybe a slightly um, idealistic hope, but I hope that people read columnists or people read good columnists uh, in the slight spirit of fun and play. You know, um, Oh, there's that thing that, you know, the word essay comes from the, comes from the word essay to try. And I mm. think, you know, a column really is just having a little go with, ide- with an idea, trying it out. Hopefully you believe it, but I think, you know, there should be a little spirit of fun and play, and which is why I realise that I often contradict myself. I was actually Googling myself, uh, one of my columns I'd written earlier today, and I can find it, and I realised I'd written basically the opposite column about a year apart. Um, I'm going to find it to read it to you. So yeah, um, August 2020, our exam obsession is a blight on society, James Marriott. Uh, August 2023, exams earn top marks for nullifying privilege. And I think I basically believe in both those opinions. Yeah. But a single opinion column is not complex enough to express 
for instance, both the good and the bad aspects of exams. So I think the best readers of columns and the most intelligent readers are never automatically interpreting absolutely everything in a column as the person who's written its final opinion and final view. And I guess part of your job as a columnist is to try and make sure that people aren't taking you as if you're laying down the iron law every week and that there's always hopefully an element of doubt, skepticism or play or humor or something in in a column. That's a really humane way of thinking about it, James. That's really helped me. This sense that kind of if you listen to someone over time or indeed you listen to a range of people, what you're getting is a kind of ecosystem of ideas and things being turned around and around and looked at from different angles. And it's probably the sort of context collapse problem of the way our information technologies work that they get ripped out of someone's kind of wider conversation with themselves and the public and just seen as these very reified, like this is an opinion and it is fixed in time. So that's been a good challenge to me to not do that to columnists. Yeah, although of course it's obviously, you know, that's an opinion that is very flattering to columnists um, and gets us off the hook a bit. So, you know, that may be a little bit self-serving. I don't think it... This is is why I left sort of the more hard newsy forms of journalism for whatever this soft and squishy reflective (laughs) world is. But I, I have found that defaulting to a more generous interpretation where possible. Um, given that we all have the tendency to judge other people harshly, c- can actually get me certainly closer to accuracy. And the yes columnists, I'm sure, including you some days, I'm sure, uh, are self-serving and, you know, arrogant and all those kind of things, but also they're complex humans trying to do a good job and um, telling those stories too feels how we say stay sane in our common life is attempting to default to a more generous interpretation. Yes, I think you're right. I mean, ours is a culture that is certainly in need of more context, not less. I'm sometimes amazed from, you know, seeing people getting cross with my columns on Twitter where they'll, you know, oh God, I mean, the eternal, the columnist's eternal nightmare. Someone tweets the headline that you didn't write or someone tweets one paragraph that you then, you know, qualify or make more complex than the next paragraph. And they say, why didn't you mention X? And you literally mentioned X in the same column. So yeah, I'm all in, all in favor of a little more generosity to columnists. Um, but of course, it's you know the price of an incredibly privileged and enjoyable job. When you do get those occasional pylons, what's that experience like? How do you process it? Um, the first few times it happened, and in fact, the first few years, I found it awful, horrible. You know, one of the worst, fe- it sounds ludicrous, but really one of the worst things that I, or about as unhappy as I felt, or almost as unhappy as I felt, just when Twitter turns against you and everyone's horrible to you and you think, oh God, I think I'm a nice person, but all these people think that I'm a horrible person. That's my reputation now and forever. Incredibly anxiety inducing, you know, beginning to kind of walk down the street and think, oh my God, have these people seen my face on Twitter? Do they think I'm evil? Um I'm a little more mature than that now. I mean, I did really find it traumatizing and upsetting. I think especially because I never, some people set out to be controversial and I never really did. I always hoped I was being nuanced. And when people thought I wasn't, you know, it was really upsetting because that's not who I thought I was. And you, the classic thing people always say is, you know, people have got this idea of me that I don't think is me, but everyone's really angry with this kind of caricature of me they've invented, which, you know, I guess is a kind of minor form of one of the problems of, you know, the celebrities always complain about. But I have become a bit more relaxed about it. I think partly because I feel that there are people who like my columns and who understand what I'm trying to do. And that even if, you know, thousands of people on Twitter think I'm evil because they've read something that's been taken out of context, there are also a lot of people who, you know, trust that I'm trying to be nice and reasonable and that I'm not evil. And that makes it a bit easier because it doesn't feel like my whole reputation is determined by what Twitter says on one day. Also, I think just understanding that Twitter isn't the real world and that, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people can be crossed on Twitter and that can still be a very small fragment of, you know, the population. So, yeah, it still upsets me, but much, much less than it once did. I used to find it really, really unbearable. Thank you for sharing that. And I could I could sense even as you're sharing it, the, the, we internalise those voices in our head, don't we, that 
like saying I found this thing hard, the that someone somewhere will respond with like, you have no idea what suffering is. Like my life is so hard. How dare you, you know, tiny violins and that there's a, there's a brutality and a lack of graciousness in that world. I think that, well, to come full circle, I think that literature can turn the volume down on that because as soon as you start listening to the internal world of someone or really listening to someone's story, it becomes legitimate, right? It becomes a reminder of the subjectivity of our human experience. I am now making no sense to myself. No, you're um, totally right. There's a great line. You made me think of a great line in the in the uh, Greta Gerwig film Lady Bird, where yes. the main character, a teenage girl, I think is really upset about something, about her relationship and her kind of uh, not very nice, uh, irritating boyfriend, I think is gesturing to the TV and saying, look, why are you so upset? There's a, you know, there's a war, you know, where... I think it was it is it filmed the time of the war in Iraq or something? And she says, uh, different things can be sad, which is I think always a useful <laughs> reminder that different things, you know, not everything has to be judged against the same, you know, standard of tragedy. Yes, gosh, that's just like the dis- distilled simplicity of it. James Marriott, thank you so much for speaking to me on the sacred. Thank you for having me. So James, what an interesting conversation. I um, I suspected I was going to like James. I like the kind of reflective and thoughtful tone of his writing. And we're often drawn to people who are in some ways um, what John Yates called PLM, people like me. Uh, the sort of technical term is homophily. But humans tend to be drawn to people with whom we have something in common. And I also... Um, love poetry and love novels and therefore already had a sort of point of connection with James. And it's useful, I think, to notice those things in ourselves um, because they're not not really rational at all. They're just uh, this sort of tender, fragile thing in humans that we we like to see ourselves reflected back. And I did like James very much, as expected. I was really surprised by the answer to his first question about being raised in basically being taught nihilism by his dad. And this, as far as I know, isn't um, out there in the public domain, didn't come across it in my research. It sounds like the question of what is sacred to you is that what had prompted James to have that, um, to, 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 to connect with that memory, to realise how significant it had been in his life as a way in which, um, against which background literature stood out as so powerfully the only thing, not one thing that we make more important or more central in our lives, but in in his sort of childhood ideological um, air conditioning, like the only thing that had value. What what an interesting and complex thing to be raised in. And I was so distracted and surprised by that. They didn't, and I sort of, you know, I pride myself on listening very well and very deeply to people. So I'm a bit annoyed at myself because he, he explained about nihilism and then he did say, yeah. and, and that's what makes literature sacred to me. And I was so distracted by the nihilism, I didn't really hear him say it. And he was very gracious with me, um, reminding me that he had actually answered my question and said, literature, literature is what's sacred to him. And that, 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 that's a complex thing, right? If you think that, or you at least are raised to think that, that there isn't really any meaning, there's no such thing as free will, then literature is this place of meaning. And he said later in the interview, a place of um, consolation, of um, steadying. It's, even for me as someone who is very, very um, pro-book and pro-novel and pro-poetry, it seems a lot of weight to ask that to take. I just had this picture of, you know, I just felt a little bit, the the... Many of us have childhoods that are not full of joy, right? And James was very frank that he was really quite unhappy in his childhood, that there was a sad divorce. Um, He kind of was waiting for his lights to start at university and solaced himself with these books. And particularly Iris Murdoch, absolutely hilarious. Like, you know, many people's adolescence obsessions are shallow. And I was thinking, mate, mine were way more shallow than yours if Iris Murdoch uh, was your shallow adolescent obsession. But sort of related to something that came up a lot across the podcast, which is just sort of 
almost painfully self-deprecating, that um, really very keen not to come across as pretentious or arrogant or um, any of those things. And honestly, it's the f- I can't think of another, forgive the huge generalizations here, cannot think of another man that I felt that with. I cannot tell you the number of women I've interviewed before we went to video who I have had, I and the team have gone through and taken out them saying sorry. Like big chunks of audio of them apologizing for themselves. I'm saying, sorry, I don't think that's a very good answer. Sorry, I'm really incoherent. Sorry, 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 sorry. It was like a vocal tick. James doesn't do that, but there was this, this sense of like, sort of protectiveness or anxiety or something about, um, and part of me wanted to be like, James, be your wonderful, earnest, enthusiastic, highbrow self. Like, don't apologize. It is a, a glorious thing, I think, when someone is just purely unashamedly passionate about something in the way that he so clearly is about poetry and literature and criticism. <laughs> as an art form that he wants to defend, but is cautious about defending. I wanted him to go full-throated for it. But maybe it's partly related to my next point, which is that when I said, what does he think he's doing a book reviewer? He said, actually, I haven't, re- I haven't spent much time thinking about it. And I don't think this is just, it's just James. So many times doing this project, I ask people in public life, and in my language, it's really like, what is your vocation? What are you called to in the world? You know, what is the meaningful piece of work that you are trying to do through your um, work? And if, unless you have been part of a religious community or some other kind of conscious, intentional um, group of people or language, very few people have actually thought about that. Very few people have gone, what am I doing with my life? Why am I doing it? What is it for? And it just feels like a lovely thing to be able to offer people a tiny little bit of space to ask that question of themselves. I think some I think sometimes it can be quite scary actually and a little bit um confronting. But I hope it's also generative and healthy. Um book reviews is like the witch magazine for books. Loved that. He said it's useful not to develop principles. And I expected to react badly against that, but actually I really understand that point about coming to a book without trying to have a sense of this is what I want it to say. This is the world I want it to paint. But taking it on its own terms, saying kind of what what can I learn from this? What can I find here? How can it challenge me? Rather than does it or doesn't it match up to a pre-existing sense of my values? I think that's probably not as necessary for just readers, but for a critic, it probably is. Um, that line about a poet reaching out and uh, a poem being like someone's reached out and taken your hand. Just gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And I always make sure I ask people who I know have experienced some sort of online abuse or pylons or backlash, which frankly is almost anyone with any kind of um, social media following these days, about how it is for them, partly as a practice for me and for all of us to remember the real people behind all this, that when I'm tempted to be snipey and um, retweet something with a sarcastic comment that is so clearly designed to make all my followers also react with contempt. Um, You know, I haven't got the power to induce a pylon, but some people have doing doing that kind of thing. When I feel like this, look at this ridiculous thing, look at this stupid quote, look at what this terrible person is saying, I'm going to share with you how annoying, I find it, and at the same time, show off my intelligence to remember that there's a real person there. And even someone like James in a position of of power and privilege said it's, you know, some of the unhappiest he's been in his life. I really think we need to take that seriously when we're trying to be good citizens in the world, people who can um, keep the humanity of other people in mind, even in our public conversations. Finally, different things can be sad. Yeah, that feels key. That feels key thing to remember. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and I was speaking to James Marriott. Our team are Dan Turner, 
Fiona Hanscom, and we're edited by Drew Hawley. Our music is by Luke Stanley, and the vocals are by Lizzie Harvey. You can find out all about our work and about all of the many episodes we have uh, created. We've been going since 2017 at theosthinktank.co.uk because The Sacred is a project of Theos, which is a think tank looking at religion and society. I love to hear from you. I really do. So please get in touch via Twitter or Instagram. Uh, We have an email. It's not checked all the time. So uh, social media is quicker. And if you are interested in this or any other episode, if you think, huh, that has sparked a new thought in me, would you consider sending it to a friend or leaving a review? The Sacred is currently ad-free and free to listen to. And so if you think this is a worthwhile project and you'd like to spend a few seconds uh, giving us your support, leaving a review or sharing an episode is absolutely um, a wonderful thing that really helps people find the podcast. It really helps amplify our reach. We hope it helps put a more reflective, empathetic, curious and open approach to conversations in our public life back into a broader context, which, let's be honest, is often um, not that. Thank you in advance for any help you can offer. Until next time, I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and you've been listening to The Sacred. Mm -hmm.